Hello and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Zooming In On Hate, a podcast series that brings together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech and disinformation. So we speak regularly to various voices from tech, civil society, law enforcement and policymakers to help us identify and analyse the latest trends on social media. This podcast is part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH for short. In this edition, we will be delving into the topic of disrupting online terrorism. I'm Lydia Elkoury from Techscan. And I'm Hannah Richter. I'm the campaign manager at Dare to Be Grey. So it's a real pleasure to welcome, welcome Anne Cranon, who is research manager at Tech Against Terrorism. And thanks a million for joining us on Zooming In on Hate. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do at Tech Against Terrorism and the wider work of Tech, Tech Against Terrorism. Yeah, so, um, so I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism. And uh, what we do as an organization is that we support the global tech sector in countering terrorist use of the Internet whilst respecting human rights. Um, and we were set up uh, and supported by UNCTED. So we were set up in 2017. Um, and we closely work together with basically all stakeholders. Um, so we work with in, uh, initiatives such as the GIFCT, so the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism. But really what we focus on is, as we've sort of seen bigger platforms take action and moderate their, their platforms, we've seen a mass migration to smaller platforms being exploited. And this is really where we focus our efforts. Um, and in terms of how we kind of help the tech sector, um, is we've got three work streams. So first of all, we conduct open source intelligence to kind of see where are terrorists and violent extremists exploiting the internet. Um, and then we reach around, uh, reach out to those platforms. And then um, we take them to sort of the second work stream, which is mentorship and uh, capacity building. So this is really where we provide, for example, recommendations to terms of service or uh, on how to actually create a transparency report. And then thirdly is where we um, build our own tools. So we've built um, the terrorist content analytics platform, so the TCAP, so I'll go into that later. Um, but basically make sure that we also support tech companies with the technology to counter terrorist use of the internet, because that's really important for us. Um, and as the research manager, I uh, surprise lead the research team. Um, so this is um, really focused on making sure that we create research that influences um, policymaking, especially policymaking on obviously terrorist use of the internet. Um, and also that we raise awareness to, to actually exploitation and what that means. So we've got podcast where we do that. Um, and an example of a recent uh, study we've been working on is that of designation. So the designation of terrorist groups where we've analyzed 13 different systems and kind of seen how can we actually make sure that designation can be used for the moderation of online terrorist content. Um, so that's kind of in short what I what I focus on. It all sounds really interesting. Thank you, Anna. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it um, in, in this podcast. So um, to, to get going, then you just mentioned that the TCAP. Can you explain a bit more about it and, and how you use it? Yeah, super happy to. Um, so I'm also the policy lead on the on the TCAP. Um, and basically, um, it's a platform that we've built uh, as Tech Against Terrorism with support from the government of Canada. Um, and what it does is it alerts terrorist content to tech companies when we find it on their platforms. 
And the way in which we do that is basically through URL sharing. Um, so we've seen that especially Islamist actors, they share massive amounts of URLs uh, that link to official content produced by the Islamic State, for instance. And um, we alert that content through the TCAP in an automated way to tech companies. Um, so they can either sign up for email alerts, um, but we've also built the TCAP as a platform so they can log in, they can see the URLs, um, they get a warning uh, in terms of how graphic the material is to make sure that we protect mental health as much as possible. Um, and really what we've seen is a great cooperation with, te with the tech sector. Um, so we've submitted over 32,000 URLs containing terrorist content to the TCAP um, and alerted over 18,000 of those to 70 tech companies. And what we've seen is that 94% of the content has been taken down following our alerts. Um, so this is really, yeah, this is a really great statistics. We want to get it even higher, but it's not a bad starting point for us because um, we've launched in November 2020, so a bit more than one and a half years. Um, so yeah, it's really one of the platforms that we want to expand on further. Um, and what we also want to do this year uh, with continued funding is to build an archive of terrorist content and to actually make that accessible to civil society and academia to make sure that we support evidence-based research. That is an incredibly impressive removal rate. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure lives have been saved as a result of it. So if we're talking about threats, what what exactly are you seeing online? What are the trends? Um, what are the greatest threats, I suppose, we'd like to know about? Yeah, so it's a great question, difficult question as well. Um, the first thing I would say is that, just to echo what I said earlier, is really the exploitation of smaller platforms. Uh, but more than that, at the moment, what is a really worrying trend is that we're seeing an increased use of decentralized file sharing platforms or decentralized technology. And this makes it harder for us because we basically can't really see who's actually hosting the content. So usually we reach out to tech companies and we're like, hey, you've got this particular piece of material on your platform. Could you please take it down? And they do. And that means that we have a contact address to send that to. But with this decentralized technology, it becomes harder because we don't really know who to reach out to. Um, and therefore the content obviously stays online for longer. So this really is one of the biggest threats at the moment. I would say second of all, um, again, We've seen sort of a re-emergence of terrorist and violent extremist operated websites, bit of a mouthful. Um, and this, again, we think is kind of a consequence of obviously, um, you know, we uh, as Tech Against Terrorism and the TCAP, but obviously law enforcement, other initiatives are becoming increasingly good at disrupting terrorist use of the internet. So therefore they'll respond to that and basically exploit other technology and move somewhere else to see if they can actually, you know, stay online there. And with terrorist operated websites, it really adds an added layer of complexity because the we can't just ask them to take the content down evidently. So we'll have to go to infrastructure providers. And that also has kind of different legal implications for, you know, us having to write an entire brief saying, you know, there's evidence of these people actually being terrorists themselves. Um, this website should be should be blocked. The domain must be like removed, for instance. And there's kind of different pathways to then getting that material offline. And the issue is also with terrorist operated websites is that they are usually also, um, well, they usually have very large archives of material. Um, and again, for those archives to stay online, that obviously is not a good thing. Um, so yeah, that is kind of the, the main threats that I would say are, are present at the moment. And just leading on from that, can you always track the source of the terrorism? Is it always possible? 
Um, I would say that for some of it, it gets harder and harder. I think um, what we always say is that obviously we kind of, so we we disrupt terrorist use of the internet to basically make it as hard as possible to find the content. And with these terrorist operated websites, for instance, we can find um, sort of the, the infrastructure provider that is hosting the website. And then if they take that down, at one point you'll see kind of, it becomes harder and harder for, for terrorists to kind of re-upload their, their website under a different name. But for example, what we see, and I think the Daily Stormer is a good case study of this, I think it was blocked so many times off the sort of deep web that it then had to move to the dark web. And then it becomes really hard because when you get to the dark web, then it almost becomes impossible to remove. But on the one hand, I would say that that is the negative point. The positive point of that is that someone will really have to know where to go to find that. So if you are someone, you know, vulnerable to, to hate or radicalization, um, you know, if you don't know where to look, then the chances of you coming across that content are less. And that is a good thing in itself, I think. That's really interesting. So they've sort of kicked themselves in the foot there a little bit um, to, to not be able to, to radicalize um, other individuals. Um, so yeah, that's one good side of it, I suppose. Um, but so looking at the threats that you've been talking about, um, would you say that they've increased since the pandemic, you know, with having more people at home, online, having more time to spend um, getting onto the dark web perhaps? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. Obviously, a question that has uh, been asked by by, by everyone, policymakers, uh, law enforcement, governments, etc. Um, and I think I think one thing with the sort of threats that we've seen, uh, which kind of is a new threat on its own, is is hybrid threats. So basically, the commingling of different online harms. So where we now have like conspiracy theories, uh, like anti-vaxxers, we then have you know violent extremism. Um, we've got terrorism, we've got, um, you know, suicide content, we've got all of these different online harms. And I think the one thing that the pandemic sort of brought about is that these different online harms can now be found uh, together on particular platforms and they kind of learn from each other as well. So, for example, we've seen that um, after the attack on the Capitol uh, in the US, after that, Parler was shut down. And then we saw a mass migration to, to other platforms where we saw recruitment guides circulate that basically informed how to take someone who's already kind of um, believing in conspiracy theories, how that then, how you could radicalize someone further to far right terrorist ideologies. And that obviously is a very dangerous trend. And I think the pandemic has kind of increased that because obviously the, you know, the, just the dominance of these conspiracy theories and like prevalence has obviously grown. Um, and I think that is, you know, that is a really worrying trend. And it also makes it harder for platforms to moderate because do you moderate it as terrorism, conspiracy theories, violent extremism, hate speech, discrimination, like it becomes harder and harder to identify and to counter. Um, and I think one really good study, because I don't think it's actually been studied that much, like academically in terms of how to take someone from like a conspiracy theory to more to more violent ideologies um, has been done by Bettina Rottweiler and Paul Gill. And they basically assess like, how can someone go from that conspiracy theory to more violent ideologies? And they say that, um, you know, low legal morality, high self-efficacy um, and low self-control kind of have to have to do with that um, and that it does actually have an effect. So I think more studies like that are really important at the moment to kind of see how does how does this all you know, work online, but also offline in terms of someone's radicalization process. Thanks, Anne. And I've got a bit of a massive question for you. Um, I mean, 
how did we get here? How has the situation with online terrorism evolved? What are the triggers that have caught, led us to where we are now? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I would say that obviously terrorist use of the internet is not a new phenomenon. It's been it's been happening for forever. But I would really say that I think, you know, the peak of the Islamic State, I do think that obviously changed things because the Islamic State were so good at using social media, especially Twitter at one point, to kind of propagate their, their state. Um, and I think that mass use of social media and the internet kind of changed the game, really. Um, and I would say that what we always talk about at Tech Against Terrorism is the idea of adversarial shift. So if we disrupt terrorist use of the internet, where will they migrate? And like, what will happen next? And also, is that then actually worse than what we started with? So for instance, you know, there have been actions on particular platforms that have significantly disrupted terrorist use of that particular platform. But then really what we've seen, and I would say like 2017 onwards really, is this mass amount of smaller tech companies being used. Um, and this is a real issue because they often don't have the capacity to understand, first of all, that they are being exploited, let alone then how to counter it. So I think like, how does these, how do these threats evolve? It's very much like, you know, we do something to counter it, terrorists and violent extremists respond. And then it's kind of like a cat and mouse game as to how that goes. And therefore I think it's exceptionally, like it's so important for, for us as sort of practitioners to think, you know, are we doing the right thing here? Um, and are we not making the problem worse? And what can happen next? And how do we start preventing that before it actually happens? Um, so I think that evolving threat is not just, you know, it's not just the terrorists and violent extremists that are evolving that threat. It's also actually our interaction with them online. And I think that is really where the really hard question comes in. Like, what do you disrupt and when? Um, so I would say that that is, that is one explanation for, I think, how the threat evolved. So moving a little bit to offline or how online affects offline uh, with the recent Buffalo shooting, um, from Tech Against Terrorism's perspective, what did you see with that? How, how was it affected online to the offline world? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, so interestingly, so on obviously the, well, the attack happened over the weekend. Um, so on the, on the Sunday, um, we kind of went on, or I went online to kind of see what was what was happening and to try and actually find the manifesto and the live stream because we quickly knew that this was a very clear case of obviously a far-right um, terrorist attack um, and therefore it was also to the extent that we knew there is a manifesto, there is a live stream um, you know, that basically is kind of the highest level of alertness for us um, and therefore we decided to go on in the weekend to kind of see, to, to make sure that we are we're basically ready for the Monday um, so yeah, we looked uh, online, we found the live stream and the manifesto quite quite quickly. Um, and I would say that the live stream was interesting because it cuts out um, after, I would say like about 50 seconds of the shooting. Um, you see him drive for a really long time and then he starts shooting and then it cuts out. So my initial question was like, why is it cutting out? What happened there? And obviously then afterwards, we found out that Twitch actually, you know, where, where the material was live streamed, um, acted incredibly quickly uh, and I'm kind of in awe actually because it really stops after 50 seconds of violence so they've they've moderated that incredibly quickly so that was kind of the live stream what we saw in terms of the manifesto um, well I think it became very clear that the attacker was very much like inspired by the Christchurch attack perpetrator and I think on Twitter and researchers were already saying they actually analyzed that to a great extent the manifesto was actually just copied from the manifesto of the Christchurch attack perpetrator 
But what I would say of kind of in the initial like reading the um, manifesto, I would say it was it was kind of like a giant lit review of like every single narrative you can have when it comes to far right extremism and far right terrorism. Um, so that was quite yeah, that was quite something to see, to be honest. And also he named a couple of platforms on which he was active and sort of, um, you know, looked at this far right terrorist content. And that kind of coincided where with our findings and where we find terrorist content, especially far right terrorist content. So that was quite worrying um, in a way. Um, so I think that is kind of the, the, the first thing we saw, obviously, in the aftermath. You know, I would say that, um, you know, the, the manifesto obviously originated on 4chan, um, you know, sort of these old tech platforms. They're obviously a massive worry um, because there were warnings, I think, of his attack as early as November last year. So obviously, I think the main thing that the attack really taught us is the importance of like threat to life protocols and not just for for practitioners as like ourselves. So we assess every piece of content we see according to intent and capability to see if the attack is like an attack is like imminent. Um, and um, I think especially for like because af- in the aftermath of these attacks, you usually hear that there were warning signs in that pe- in that person's life. But the issue is, is that I think the bystanders often don't know. And I think with these school shootings as well, we're seeing like uncles, aunts, they say, we, you know, there's there were no warning signs. But then actually, when you start looking at it, there were warning signs. And I believe also a study on them, Lone Actors by Paul Gill, he said everyone kind of, you know, with every attack, someone always knows something. And I think it's how do we teach people offline um, to see these warning signs and to make sure that they escalate it to the police um because obviously online there are warning signs and threat to life protocols will assist with that um but i think offline you know that interaction with offline and how do you see someone's radicalization process offline is incredibly important and i think you know again with isis i think there's been a massive focus on like what does that mean for for the for the islamist terrorists and what are the warning signs there for the far right do we know i'm not sure if we do and also with these school shootings like these people are usually well, what we've seen now also in, in, in Copenhagen, um, you know, they are often su- like suicidal themselves. So how does then someone who has suicidal thoughts, how does that transgress to like, I want to bring others with me? And do we call that radicalization? Do we call that violent extremism? Um, so it makes it way harder. And, and I mean, in this field, we're we're always trying to learn from each atrocity to avoid it being repeated. What did Tech Against Terrorism take away from from Buffalo to to try and stop it ever happening again? Yes, I think also a great question. I think, first of all, we've kind of thought, um, what can we do more as an organization? And um, obviously we have the TCAP and we kind of have that alerting function. And I should say that... um, all material that we alert through the TCAP that comes from a designated terrorist entity or um, actually we now also look at the New Zealand's classification office that ban particular pieces of content and um, based on an interim decision they basically banned the manifesto and live stream of the Buffalo shooter on the 14th and 15th of May Um, and the statement came two days after and when it came out we decided to alert the material to tech companies and basically um, include it in the TCAP now so since since then we've alerted 89 URLs to seven tech companies mostly small in nature but what we've kind of seen is that we're basically waiting for that legal decision to be made 
Um, whilst actually we think we have the infrastructure, especially to reach out to those smaller platforms, because there are existing crisis protocols by governments, by, by other initiatives, but we kind of see a gap when it comes to smaller tech companies. So we're thinking of ways in which to kind of plug the tea gap into these existing crisis protocols to see where can we get actually help with taking this material down um, more quickly um, and especially by smaller tech companies. So that's kind of on like what we do. Um, I think second of all, what I find kind of the, the most tragic thing is that there were there were obviously warning signs. Uh, you know, the, the diary on Discord, the manifesto on 4chan, um, the use of Twitch. So in a way, I think, you know, obviously there's legal barriers to this, but I wish that there was a way in which we could say, you know, if there's an actor on a particular platform that is exhibiting like, uh, you know, hate speech or violent terrorist content, etc. How do the how do we sort of follow his online footprint to other platforms to see actually, oh, are there other platforms that are being used? And then what is sort of the trend of those platforms? Because I do think 4chan, Discord, um, you know, kind of that link um, when someone is then also just espousing like hate speech and uh, violent extremist content, um, it would be very interesting to, to basically get the full picture. And I think you can't really do that if you only look at one platform. You would probably, in, in hindsight, right, it kind of makes sense when we have the full footprint, but we didn't before. So I think, you know, just kind of thinking through how do we look at the entire ecosystem being exploited by an actor as this, rather than just one platform can hopefully connect the dots better. But obviously that is really hard to do um, online. Well, that's really interesting to, to hear that you've you've learned a lot from it. And it sounds like you know what you need to do already going forward. So I'm excited to see if you guys do manage to to do that. Um, so with events like the Buffalo shooting happening almost on a daily basis in America, especially, what can monitoring and prevention do to help the situation? Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting question. And I think for us as well, like, you know, with the amount of shootings at the moment, we've kind of had to be like, well, our open source intelligence team has basically had to be like, like on call all the time and uh, basically working on these different things but i would say that the buffalo one i think is slightly different in the sense that it is such a clear example of a far-right terrorist like far-right terrorist attack which is quite different from some of the other shootings because we don't really know if they had like a like a clear ideology whether it corresponds to like far-right terrorism whether the person was like facing mental health issues so it's kind of different in terms of you know when is there a political ideology behind an attack which for us really matters um, because at the moment we only focus on like terrorist attacks. I think with the crisis protocol that we're building, that would be different. So we would really base that on, for example, the virality of, of content produced. Um, so for example, if a school shooter, um, sorry, if a school shooting was gonna happen or happening and it was live streamed, then that would enact our crisis protocol, even if we don't know that it is terrorist in nature or not. Um, so that is kind of one, um, one thing that we're thinking about, again, I think, you know, monitoring, preventing, I think, um, you know, basically, I think we're at the stage where everyone is almost, you know, having to be trained in like threat to life protocols, um, which actually sounds, you know, it sounds very intense, but also with the with the amount of content we're seeing and sort of these warning sides, I think like digital resilience is becoming increasingly important and making sure that people understand what they're seeing and also where to reach out. Um, because we've also seen that with, uh, you know, even for us, if an attack, if we know the location of an attack, we might have to actually call up a local police department being like, hey, we're seeing this. 
So I think sort of the integration of where do we send threat to life um, alerts and kind of who are these best contacts? Because I think even for practitioners and organizations like ourselves, I'm pretty sure that like Moonshot, ISD, like sort of the similar organizations that ours probably reach out to different people than we do. So it kind of is about, I think, coordinating and making sure that we work together to make sure that that like that if there is a potential threat to life, that it reaches the right person as quickly as possible. Um, so I think it's it's, you know, to an extent that obviously it is. You know, and that's more of a political thing. But I think, um, you know, preventing and monitoring, um, you know, obviously the, the I, in in the U.S. guns and gun rights are obviously, you know, it is something that we I don't think we can't monitor against that and we can't prevent against that. Um, and it's yeah, it's becoming increasingly tragic, I think. And also increasingly, to be honest, infuriating, like infuriating to kind of see this happening because we can monitor. But yeah if i mean there's a reason why it happens in the u.s to this extent and not elsewhere i think and unfortunately that doesn't really have anything to do in my opinion um with online content Uh, yeah absolutely i think you'll have a lot of nodding listeners um to what you just said um it is infuriating so Anne, is there anything we can do to prevent individuals like the buffalo shooter from becoming radicalized online Yeah, so there's definitely uh, things we can do, which is the optimistic um, point. I would first of all say that, um, you know, we kind of say that if there is um, radicalization, it's usually a mix of the online and offline realm. So, you know, there are, for example, hotspots of um, foreign fighters that traveled to, to, to join the caliphate. And these hotspots kind of indicate that, um, you know, obviously online propaganda has has an effect and it can play into someone's radicalization process. It is often not solely on online material that someone radicalizes. So this is, I think, quite an important distinction because I think after an attack, sort of the, the gut response is to say, like, we need to control the online realm and that will fix it. And we're saying, obviously, there's a lot we can do to counter terrorist use of the Internet and to make sure that we... Um, minimize the chance of someone radicalizing based on online content but you will also have to address the offline otherwise we won't really we won't really get there but when we talk about the online i think especially the buffalo um, attack really shows this there was such inspiration based on the christchurch attack um, and the attacker that i think you know that material should not be online and it should not be easily accessible so i think first of all removing um, you know clear terrorist content like this so this is really what we try and say like any material produced uh, in support of or by a designated terrorist entity should be made illegal and it should be you know it should be in the law that it is illegal and what we've seen through the analysis of our project is that actually only a couple of countries um, you know kind of have made it illegal or the content illegal whilst in most countries it's kind of up to tech companies and we really say it can't be up to private institutions to set speech norms or to decide what is terrorist content that should be done um, by governments and by democratically like accountable institutions um so i think recognizing that you know material like this um is terrorist in nature and should be removed that first of all needs to be grounded in the rule of law i think 
And then second of all, um, you know, it needs to be removed and we need to support tech companies in doing so because it can be very hard. And especially also, again, based on the um, the Buffalo attack, you know, the live stream, we've kind of seen it gamified. Um, we've seen it sort of edited, repurposed. And it can be very hard for a content moderator to see 10 seconds of the live stream and realize that that is a live stream of a terrorist attack. So kind of giving the practical support to tech companies, especially smaller ones, again, um, to detect and moderate this material is really, really important. Um, and I would also highlight that, um, you know, the TCAP is sort of one way in which we help with this. But we've also built, uh, built the knowledge sharing platform. So the KSP, we love our acronyms at Tech Against Terrorism. Um, but basically what this does, it really goes alongside the TCAP because it basically has anything you need to know about content moderation and especially content moderation of, of terrorist content. So it has like a symbol compendium. It has like groups of designated organizations it, it has online regulation so actually in which jurisdiction is content illegal and in which jurisdiction is it not um how to write transparency reports and to again kind of help with that like awareness raising and that knowledge around terrorist use of the internet because it's actually when you go into it it's such like a complex field um and it's not only about detection and moderation it's also about you know upholding human rights at the same time um so i think that is really, really important in terms of, you know, how do we stop it online? I think, um, yeah, removing the, the, the worst content, obviously, with the Buffalo shooter, I would say that that falls under it, but making sure that that is grounded in the rule of law. So just one final question for you. Um, and we're just throwing this one in there um, to think on your feet. So if you had a magic wand, what would you do to address the situation online? It's a great question. Um, I feel like I've, I've sort of, um, I'm reiterating, or sort of saying what I already said, but I, for me, really making sure that the rule of law, um, you know, takes the responsibility here. I think there is, well, we've got designation of terrorist groups um, and every country has a list, but it's just, it's not applied to the online realm. And I think sort of, you know, we are in the 21st century now, like we have to basically bring our judicial system you know to the digital age so we have to and i think that should be the focus because i think at the moment it is unfortunately tech companies that are sort of you know um yeah um running the war for now basically they're at the forefront of this and that shouldn't be the case in my opinion and i think lots of governments have have obviously made progress with coming up with online frameworks such as the online safety bill or um the tco in the european union and i think they are great starting points to kind of you know, to legislate the online realm. But I think if it doesn't define what terrorist content is clearly, um, then the chances of these like um, regulations to actually be effective in, in countering terrorist use of the internet is just quite low. And at the same time, you know, if tech companies are going to face liability um, and fines, the chances of like over removals are going to be high. And that also means there's a high risk to human rights and digital rights, especially freedom of expression. So I think designation is one way in which we can, and I'm not saying designation will solve everything, but it is one way to really make sure that we, um, you know, have legal grounds and tech companies have legal grounds to remove um, terrorist content. And, you know, again, with the Buffalo attack perpetrator, I would say that, you know, this type of content and inspiring others, obviously we've seen very clear examples. And I think it's just, yeah, it's basically not good enough, I think, to 
to not address that. So I think designating and making basically content produced by designated terrorist organizations illegal is incredibly important. I would say, however, that obviously that only focuses on terrorist content. We still are then left with, you know, uh, other online harms, whether that is hate speech, discrimination, misogyny. Um, and I think for that, again, you know, we're still focusing on terrorist content, but we're already seeing the reality of other hybrid threats. And again, lawmakers are kind of behind that. So how do we make sure that we don't wait, you know, four years to draft legislation around this? How do we address that now? And I think, to be honest, yeah, I think that is going to be one of the main areas of focus at the moment. And I think it's, you know, tech companies are kind of considering this already, but making sure that we support tech companies in doing this, I think is incredibly important. Um, because also, you know, how does one online harm go to the next um, is a great worry. So I think, yeah, if designa I wish designation could solve it all, but obviously it can't, but I think it's a very good starting point. Well, let's hope that the the new laws that are coming in, you know, around Europe with the with the DSA and in the UK with the online safety bill, let's hope they are starting to make some sort of a difference uh, because we do really, really need them, and it's probably not going to be the last of of the laws that will be brought in. Um, so, thank you so much, Anne, for joining us uh, for this special podcast of zooming in on hate, which is focused on disrupting online terrorism. No worries at all. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, they were really good questions. Like, they're, yeah, they're just, re they're really hard, right? So I think uh, really well done. And uh, yeah, I hope that listeners think along because I think it's something that we uh, all need to think about. Absolutely. I think, I think we all fully agree with you. So thanks so much for lending your expertise to us, Anne. And, and, you know, they are difficult questions and I don't, I think pl plenty of food for thought. So, um, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe to our mailing list at www.eooh.eu and we'll let you know about the next episode and indeed follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and to keep part of our conversation. And a final special shout out to our funder, the European Commission's Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Justice. Thanks again to Anne Crannan from Tech Against Terrorism and thanks for listening.